A reading from the letter of James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the poor, the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was given my first Bible, authorised version of course, when I was eight. And I still carry it around in my car. I mention it because the uncle who gave it me drew my attention to the opening words of the book from which we heard our first lesson. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see why I've always had a soft spot for this short letter. Raymond Brown, viewed my son as the best New Testament scholar of the 20th century, reminded us that it's a work that Luther called an epistle of straw. But Brown added, which has come into its own in our time as the most socially conscious writing in the New Testament. Luther looked especially to words of Paul which stress the, our absolute dependence on God's free grace. And he wrongly imagined that James's teacher teaching about good works undermined that. Setting faith and good works in conflict with each other is a serious misunderstanding of both human nature and our relationship with God. As James puts it, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. Did he realize how closely he was echoing the words of Jesus? You will know them by their fruits. James attacks the false distinction between faith and good works, and it's his socially conscious message that makes this book such an excellent way into our celebration 
of the season of creation. James, of course, can't deal directly with the crisis of climate change or whether our planet has a future. But we mustn't suppose that social conscience identified by Roman Brown means only what we in our own age recognize as best for humanity, society, and the planet. The convictions we have on such things rest, whether we realize it or not, on what we believe about God, our creator. Yet we know of people with no religious faith who also read the signs of our times and share our concerns for human life over the coming decades. But for us, there's an added, more basic dimension to our concern. We have a different starting point and we believe a different destination. When we contemplate the wonders of creation, it's not just the beauty of a sunset or the grandeur of a mountain range which inspire us. It's the conviction that these are gifts and that there's a giver to whom we owe gratitude. And this is accompanied by a belief that these gifts have been entrusted to us to be cherished on behalf of all creatures. This in turn leads us to believe that behind all this lies a purpose. What we can see is but a foretaste of something more amazing yet to come. The gifts are for all humanity. God speaks to us through them and gives us the task of passing on the message to the whole world. What has all this to do with the Epistle of James? Or, to put it another way, what does he have to say which might have a bearing on us and our situation? Everything leads us back to the basic flaw in our human nature which lies at the heart of all evil and suffering. James doesn't talk to us about carbon emissions or the damage our plastic waste is causing throughout the world, but he points very clearly to the damage our selfishness does to human nature and to the human family. And that's the fatal starting point for all other ills we can imagine. James is shocked that people who consider themselves Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus, can treat each other with so little respect, let alone love. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He reminds his readers that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. The offence of the rich and powerful is far graver than deciding who may sit in which seats when they gather for worship. But you have dishonoured the poor. For the rich and powerful, the temptation to use their position of strength to exploit the poor and vulnerable seems irresistible. But we can't read these words with any sense of self-satisfaction. If we lift our eyes above our own parochial situation, we see at once that in the global setting, we are the rich and powerful. And don't we resent the desire of the poor to occupy what for centuries we've come to look on as our seats in the world? James reminds us, as Jesus did before, of the royal law of scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
To fail to do this is sin. It's to fail to acknowledge that all people are God's beloved children and that there's no place for selfish discrimination. But it's even worse than that. It's the rich and powerful who are laying waste to our beautiful planet. It's the poor who are the first to pay the price and pay the highest price. Having been a bit rude about St. Paul, I must quote one of the passages where he's most sublimely inspired. Writing to Christians in Rome, he recognizes that humanity, redeemed by God, has a key role in leading all things back to their maker. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's our vocation as God's children. How precisely this will come about is a mystery, but it's very clear that at present we're pointing in completely the wrong direction. The world needs a radical turn around, or as we should say in religious terms, conversion. The daunting and at the same time exciting prospect is that God is calling us to be fellow workers in this massive project. How then can we answer that call? We feel we are so few that we're in danger of thinking that small equals insignificant. If that were true, how did the little band of Jesus' first followers grow into a worldwide family of more than two and a half billion souls? Each of us can do small things in our own lives, saving natural resources in all sorts of ways, trying to turn away from using fuels which harm the planet, making efforts to restore what has been damaged or destroyed. These may seem futile just gestures against the massive scale of the problems facing us. Not at all. They each represent a change of heart and the greater the number of hearts that are changed in our world, the nearer we move towards the conversion that our suffering world is so desperately crying out for. It's also a step in the right direction towards persuading our political leaders and through them the leaders of the world's nations to adopt drastic remedial measures and to adhere to them through thick and thin. The International Climate Conference in Glasgow this November offers a unique opportunity to listen to the voices of the poor and those who speak for them, so as to be heard by the rich and powerful. That certainly is the ambition of Pope Francis, who's hoping to be there. If we believe that this is God's work and that we're being called to participate in it, we need hardly stress that our most powerful tool is the power of prayer. We can't understand exactly how prayer works. But if we're to cooperate with God in bringing about God's will in our world, it must surely be clear that faithful conversation with God is of the highest importance. Our season of creation is first of all a call to recognize God's goodness and to give thanks for it. 
but this will be empty words if at the same time we fail to renew our commitment to striving with God for the renewal, indeed the redemption, of that mighty work of which we are ourselves a part. Loving Father, we thank you that we are marvellously and wonderfully made in your image. Help us by your Spirit to respond as Jesus' followers to your call to share in the care and healing of your creation. Amen. Amen.